Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. So we've got, uh, so Decency by Design is, I don't know if you, I kind of zoned out there because I'm kind of a little bit nervous, but did you talk about the, did you you talk about the three by design talks? I didn't. Okay, so uh, Decency by Design is the third and final part of our by design series. We had um, Death by Design, which was um, really super popular because that was our first talk coming out of lockdown. And, and in the middle of January. In the middle of January, it was dark. Um, yeah, it was, that, was a tough, that was a tough call. We've learned that maybe being a bit more fun is a good idea. Um, the second one was... Diversity. Diversity by Design, which diverse was... By design. Diverse by Design, which was kind of pluralism of places and people. It's probably a, we should have had that as the subheading. Anyway, uh, and tonight is decency, so I was going to like read out the dictionary definition of decency or something like that, but I've decided not to bother because I'm going to leave that up to the panel. So we've got four amazing um, speakers tonight. We've got Sanar Sheikh from uh, CSM and ACAN, is that right? And Native Studio, her own practice. Um, uh, yeah, woo, yeah. Um, We've also got um, uh, Emma from 60 Bricks, um, and uh, she can tell you a bit about um, that, the housing that they're delivering over there. Um, in Waltham Forest, great borough. Um, we've also got um, Jerry Tate from Tate & Co., who's an archi- lo- local architect, localish architect, um, uh, with a focus on sustainable design. And we've got Alistair Ben-Dixon, who's stepping in for Joe Morris tonight. Thank you, Alistair, who um, was actually an obvious choice for tonight because he's literally writing the book on ethics. Um, so uh, that's all of our speakers. I'm going to go to them in turn to start with a sort of provocation. We might have a bit of back and forth, but if anyone wants to join at any point, just get stuck in. I know that in some events people say, people groan when they hear, oh, it's more of a comment than a question. We don't care about that. We don't, we have, we don't mind about comments, questions, anything. You want to get involved, let's, just, let's hear from the room. So we'll be keeping an eye out for that and handing out microphones. So um, let's start with Sana. If you just slide your um, mic to up, is that working? Can we hear you? That will work. That'll be us. Don't worry. That's us. That's our technical (laughs) issue. So what is decency and why, why why do you lecture and tell people about ethics? Because as spatial practitioners or designers, we, we have a massive impact on, on people, on places and the planet. And it is our duty, um, both by the code of conduct, but also as people to understand what that impact is. Um, and for me, um, 
there's never a straightforward answer because you can never, like, whatever you do, there's going to be a negative impact and there's going to be a positive impact too. But designers tend to focus on the positive and, and ignore the negative. Um, and it, it's just really important to be aware of both. Um, and often we, we're not. And I think that has a greater overall kind of impact on, on, the, on the world, really. So that's kind of the... Yeah, message. I think. Sure and sweet. <laughs> yeah. um, I was just going to say, can people outside hear us? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic! If you are outside and you want to come in, there's loads of room to stand, so you don't have to stand outside if you want to stand inside. Um, but okay, I'm going to come. I'm going to come back to you on those okay. points, Anna. But yeah. I just want to go sort of similarish question to Alistair. Like, I mean, why you've you've been involved in ROBA ethics? You're now um, in the midst of a book. On the subject? Yeah. Okay. Uh, why? Why, why? Why would you uh, get drawn into that? What does it mean to be an ethical architect? Yeah. How, how do we deal with all these issues? Thank you for the prompts tonight, Rob, and thank you for bringing me in last minute. I've had a little bit of time writing the book, so thankfully the preparation was okay. Um, but yeah, really, I've been kind of investigating these issues throughout my career in large practice, small practice, charities, action groups, trying to figure out a sort of safe and sensible way to practice architecture. And... Um, at Collective Works, my own small practice, we're kind of trying to investigate that. Um, the book for Reba will be coming out in July. Hopefully it will be well received. It is on ethics, which is super difficult to talk about, but I'm going to try and share some observations that I've learned over the, over the past few months researching it and one approach which I sort of find useful here. Um, the trouble with ethical practice is twofold. On the one hand, once you commit to a full understanding of your impact, it becomes super overwhelming. Um, Jeremy Till quotes philosopher Zygmunt Bauman at the end of Architecture Depends, his great book on the topic. He says, moral responsibility is unconditional and infinite. It manifests itself in the constant anguish of not manifesting itself enough. So you're on this journey, you know, how deep does the rabbit hole go? It's super difficult to start chasing your impact down. Um, secondly, no matter how far you do go, it's always very subjective. You may believe that you're running an ethical practice, but others will be well within their rights to disagree with that. Evidence of this comes from the fact that companies with the most stringent ethical codes tend to be those who do the most nefarious work. Think about gambling, fossil fuels, tobacco companies. These organizations all have very rigorous ethical codes, but you'd probably agree they're not particularly ethical. So what can you do in the face of these challenges? Well, an approach I've found useful is to see your work through the lens of the six duties. Um, these are embedded in the RIBA's code of conduct, the AIA code, also, the B Corp and B Lab, they use them to kind of score and rate ethical companies. Um, so basically, understanding that you do have a duty to the wider world, to respect nature, natural resources, and biodiversity. Towards society and the end users, those who are sort of getting involved with your buildings, to ensure that they're safe and healthy. Towards those commissioning your services, to your clients, to be honest and reliable. Um, towards those in the workplace, to show respect, prioritise equity, diversity, and inclusion, to pay them well. And towards your profession, to uphold the standards and really share knowledge in the profession. Um, and then lastly, the important one is duty to oneself. Don't forget to have in integrity and practice self-care in architecture. Maintain your competence. Make sure you're not actually doing yourself a disservice. Um, so for me, seeing my actions through those different lenses helps kind of consider when an ethical dilemma comes in, why am I so conflicted about it? Is it because I'm doing one of these things, one of these duties at the expense of another? Um, and then lastly, really, ethics is a hurdle, as I see it. It's not a process. It's, sorry, it's a process. It's not a hurdle. Um, it's really about trying to be... <laughs> that sentence was a bit of a hurdle. Um, 
It's really about trying to be an independent professional and weigh up the different duties that come into play. Because um, really what you want to do is cause the least harm possible. Saying you'll do no harm is perhaps idealistic in our profession. Um, and then lastly, on kind of responsibility, I do want to share another quote here from Fahana Yamin, who spoke at last year's Built for the Environment Summit. On responsibility for kind of the, you know, the building impacts, he says, we should all be responsible for emissions of our clients, because in some ways we are the enablers of business as usual, and we currently get off scot-free, because we can say we're simply in the service industry, and we don't have to take responsibilities for our clients' emissions. But actually, she suggests we're ethically culpable, if not morally, professionally, and legally culpable. So do take that responsibility. Thanks very much. I mean, that's exactly the definition we needed, which I didn't provide, so thank you. <laughs> um, uh, Jerry, you run a practice, and I know that, I know that you're, you're, very, you're very conscious of impact on the environment and on the people that you know, occupy buildings and are kind of within the city body or rural body. You know, how does that how does that play on the practice's mind? Not just yours, but you know, the team around you. Like, how do you how do you process those challenges of buildings versus environment, biodiversity, the kind of your ethical role in what you're kind of adding to the cycle? Yeah, um, I'm slightly worried coming after Alistair because that was a heck of a brilliant definition. I think it's quite. Um, I actually did. I. I I did chat GPT decency by design just to see what it said, actually. Just, I thought, oh, that'd be easy. Um, and it was a really short little bit that it came up with. It said, design stuff that makes the world a better place. I was like, oh, right. I thought it'd be right more than that. So um, it's, I'd say about a third of our clients are charities that have a mission to do something better kind of for the globe. So we work for people like you know, the Eden Project and the National Trust and the Habitat First Group. And in a way, from an ethical practice point of view, that's a bit of a cheat, really, in that what we have to do is align ourselves with our clients' values and make sure that we're doing the right thing. And quite a lot of the time, they're already more aware than we are of things like the five capitals model of sustainability or, or, or something like that. So that kind of design work, we fall into and we find it very easy. But then we also work in the sort of slightly more nefarious world, I guess, of kind of you know commercial development we we do do commercial residential developments and that is the point at which it becomes challenging to remain decent as designers actually and and that is the point where you know what is your role when do you walk away from a project um if you show someone the right thing to do and they ignore you um is that it kind of in terms of your relationship and I think we, we have, um, this is going to lose me if there's anyone in the room who might employ us, we, we have asked clients to not work with us anymore. Like we've walked away from jobs because we felt that the impact of what we were doing was wrong. So that's fine, but then the trouble with that is understanding the impact of what you're doing. And that's, that's another thing that we struggle to keep up with all the time, just being completely honest. I think the thing that Alistair was touching on is how do you know you're being decent? You know, at one point, we were very much into Passive House, Operation Energy. We, we were, like, obsessed by it five years ago. And, and now we're getting more and more into embodied energy because we realised that our impacts were kind of skewed in a carbon output point of view. Um, similarly, you know, it's really easy to be into biodiversity when you're working for the Eden Project, but with, with, a, with a smaller kind of tighter urban site, it can be more challenging to get that kind of thing in. So it, it's getting those balances right all the time and making sure that you're creating a kind of balanced, decent solution, which, which is 
which, I, which we sort of struggle with. I'm being, I feel like I'm in therapy or something. Um, and the third thing I would say is the ethics of running an architecture practice. You know, Kais is here today. Hello, Kais. I think it's all right to work for us, isn't it? Yeah, I'll put them on the spot. It's not fair. Um, but one of those things is, you know, you may be doing the greatest work that's helping save the planet, but you also have a responsibility to your team to make sure that the environment you're creating for them is supportive and safe and diverse and welcoming, you know, provides all the right kind of benefits. And I think that is a struggle for the profession as a whole. And I think it's a it's brilliant that the Future Architects Front have started addressing that, if I'm being really honest, because that kind of um, uh, grassroots pressure just didn't exist in the profession about 15 years ago. So it's finally giving some balance, if you like, to the kind of the working environment of, of architecture. Um, there you go. It's like a confessional, isn't it? So uh, I'll better hand over to Emma. <laughs> That's what we want, isn't it? Confessions. Confessions of the Negroni Talks. If you could yeah. pass the mic along. So um, we're sort of charting this route from academia and teaching to publishing to practice to buildings, Emma. And... Um, I think 50% of our text describing this event was actually about the, the, you know, the quality of places that we're making for people to inhabit. Um, you know, how much of a challenge is that in, in, in your world at 60 Bricks in, you know, in kind of balancing everything so that you, you can you know, make homes but also make decent homes? Yeah, so, um, I mean, ethics, property development difficult bedfellows um our role is to make the impossible possible and we do that by working with collaborative teams of really great individuals and lots of great architects um from a client's perspective uh, we we're unique we're one of many council-owned development companies so um we're we're private sector, but we're publicly owned. So we're really profit for purpose. And so within our DNA, we've got established ethics. Um, but I really struggled with this decency by, by design because for me, decency is so mediocre, mediocre. You know, we talk about the decent home standards, and usually that's a measure of pretty shit housing, particularly public, public sector housing. So for me... I just think the word is wrong. You know, I don't look for decency by design. I think we should be um, aiming so much more than just decency. Um, so for, for me as a client, as a developer, um, I'm very much embedded in those triple bottom line principles. So how do we ensure that every new development is equally you know, socially responsible, environment, environmentally responsible, and financially responsible? Now, we're fortunate as a public sector-owned company, we can take a long view because often the tension falls under the money bit, the profit bit. People, planet, profit, and it's usually the profit that kind of fucks it all up. And so it's how do we work through this whole tension between cost and value? How do we realign value to the right places? And so much of that value is delivered through great design. You know? And it's accepting that um, you know, design can come at a cost, but also that design can unlock so much more value. Um, so I did do a bit of reading over the weekend on ethics and architecture. I bought a book. <laughs> um, 
which I then read, and then I wrote some notes in a tiny little notebook, which I'm going to show you. Um, yeah, one of these, okay, one of these books. You buy them in packs of four or five. And um, so I bought a pack, and so this, this afternoon I was doing some notes from my book, which I'd highlighted, and then I realised I bought the blank book. <laughs> so... Um, there you go. Um, but I think, so I think there is something about the role that um, architects can play in educating the client. For me, um, the arch- architects I've worked with have always been kind of a moral compass. So, you know, 15 years ago when I started building passive house buildings, uh, that came as a consequence of talking to an architect that understood it. I didn't. I was a client. We're not particularly intelligent. Um, but, you know, understood the reasons for doing it. Um, And I think often we don't talk enough about the why. Why are we doing what we're doing? And often it's the why that gives you the most credible business case and gives you the most credible economic argument for delivering not decent homes, but delivering amazing exemplar homes. Um, From an ethical uh, viewpoint, um, I sleep really well at night. Um, you know, we deliver over 50% affordable housing for all our schemes. Our last uh, phase one of development delivered 75%. That's not easy. Um, it's nigh on impossible. Um, but again, it's working with the right teams of people to make the impossible possible. And you can do it. And um, so I think we need to change from decency by design. And probably somebody in here has got a better D word. Um, for that. So maybe the challenge before the end of the evening is to, to go up from decency to what's the next rung up from decency? So I don't know. Delight, delightful by design. Yes, quite like that. I, th- I think it's probably telling that the bar is so low that <laughs> that's, as, that's as far as we came in at. And, I, and not a Waltham Forest. Not a Waltham <laughs> Forest. No, obviously not. Great borough, great borough. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I think I was talking to someone earlier on, like, do you think that maybe standards are kind of the expectation is so much lower because really you think because you think about space standards in the 60s and 70s probably greater than greater than now is that correct I'm looking well, at housing I think experts we're yeah we're so much driven by cost the space standards aren't even really a legal requirement it's a standard so all the standards are often just guidelines people can get away with whatever they want. And I don't know if, like, when you work for the bar- the big developers of the world, <laughs> I won't give names away, but it is always what you can get away with. It is never about thinking about the user, thinking about your actual impact. And they, and not even just from a client perspective, even from a consultant expect, um, perspective, all your consultants will be like, oh, I can get you that through planning. Okay, I can pass that for you. And it's never actually, and, and you know... From my perspective, I'm going, yes, but what is the, like, least harmful? Can we, like, look at it from that view? But there's so much drive to get, you know, like, a a consultant often thinks from a perspective what is best for my client, and they're not thinking about it from a wider society perspective. Um, And because our standards are quite low, um, they are the lowest standards. They aren't best practice. And I think we need to be setting what is best practice rather than complying with the lowest standards, which is perhaps what is decent, right? (laughs) Because we don't have much choice. Even those standards, you can get lower ones if you want to. Um, So it's, it's, um, I think it's, it's really pushing for those things. 
I, I think that is right. And, and I think that, um, so Sana, you know, like, like the examples of great housing have come from a bit like 60 Bricks, really. You know, the Sydney Cook GLC era housing, the Camden housing and stuff was just amazing. And that was people who had a kind of, uh, a client and an architect had a deep-held ethical belief in what they were doing and had a mission that was beyond just kind of turning a buck. And one of the problems that we found whenever we've interfaced with sort of red in tooth and claw developers is is that we struggle with their value system, to be completely honest. Um, and it always makes me question why that is a delivery mechanism for buildings. You know, and, and we sort of assume in the UK that that is should, how you should build buildings. And I think that things like 60 Bricks are showing that there's another way. But if you go around um, Holland, for example... The structure of building a housing estate in Holland is completely different. You know, there's packets of land and there's people going to kind of custom house builders and there's people building houses they want to see. If you go to Almir, it's just this completely different model that people are eagerly kind of emulating and, and going for, which is great to see. But still, the majority of red and tooth and claw development delivers a product that I'd question the value of in the end. Um, and, I, and I wonder how they get away with it. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, that passes on for I ruin my, ruin my company. I think you have to remember, you know, for developers, they're not developing for design or architecture. It's profit, pure profit. And I think you have to realise the whole, you know, certainly the volume house builders market, it's completely profit driven. You know, whatever they're building is immaterial to them. They're just driven by profit. Um, and I think we're just lacking that degree of sophistication, which I think there is a shift because obviously with, um, uh, you know, the whole sort of um, um, economic, uh, sorry, the whole sort of um, ESG agenda, you know, where we're seeing now funders are you know, becoming under a little bit more uh, pressure to maybe scrutinise uh, perhaps the supply chains, perhaps what they're doing. Over time, we might see that, but generally, going back to you know, it's standards, isn't it? I mean, you know, developers will work to the bare minimum, building regulations, bare minimum, um, whatever is mandatory. And it's only the more sophisticated that will say, actually, if I actually go from decent to delightful by design, um, I'll actually be more profitable. I'll make more money. Um, but actually, that's breaking the model. It's, it's breaking the tried and tested model that has given us lots of profit. Um, there, there is one other way that you can uh, get better standards that um, I was discussing with ACAN member today. It's uh, shaming. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> when you start putting in the press, your house is killing you, or, you know, these kinds of things, that's the only way. I mean, you know, there have been maybe less in the kind of obvious press, but definitely in the architectural press, things like they built a tower without two staircases. Who would do that after Grenfell? Um, and people have, and then that architecture practice went back and did too. You know, like, there are loads of examples like that. And so, yeah, I, I don't know if that's uh, driven by a developer or who it's driven by, but I'd say that um, if there's a way we could do that more, that's uh, from a... At climate action perspective, something we are looking at to instigate change. I'm going to go to Julie in a second, but before I do, I just wanted to go back to you, Alistair, just um, to touch upon this idea of reputational damage. And so I guess if you look at the press and we're talking about cladding, we're talking about damp, we're talking about um, 
staircases for fires. We, um, I can't remember what the other issue was. There's, it's been, you know, your house is killing you has been a sort of regular headline. Do you think the sort of the reputation of the architect is being tainted by this? Is it being dragged into the mud? Or do you think architects are aloof enough to say, oh, no, we're, we're ethical. Don't look at us, Gav, it's someone else. I think there's a real risk that we're not meeting our duty to the public interest. And that should, according to the code, trump all of the other duties that I listed. So actually, if the public interest is not being held up here, then you've got to ask yourself, you know, why are we doing this work? Why is it, why is it allowed to happen? And I think Jerry and Sanar both bring up great thoughts about the activist groups who are beginning to call this out. And it's not just in terms of cladding. It's also about environment. It's also about equality and diversity. And there's a lot of different groups now doing some brilliant work. So ACAN, Future Architects Front, Architects Declare, Black Females in Architecture, After Party. The list goes on of these great groups but then to get back to the reputation of the profession, you've got to think, well, why is there a gap? Why are they needing to do all of this work? Because there's a lot of unpaid labour in these groups actually doing all of this work. And I think there is a question of, you know, why aren't the RIBA doing more of that work? Why aren't the ARB doing more of that work to actually, you know, bring these issues to the table more strongly? So um, that would help uphold the reputation if those groups and the institutions could work more effectively on campaigning to raise standards. Um, I think that's where some of this might sit. I think also it was, I don't know how, I don't know if people read the Dezine article about Architects Declare, sort of, in a way, reverse, you know, playing the reverse Uno cards, naming and shaming the activists for saying, you haven't haven't solved the climate emergency, Architects Declare, ergo, therefore, you're a failure, which I I felt was a bit harsh. But just before I get to Julie, I don't know... What did, yeah, you, I mean, what did you think about... I sit on the steering group and we are formulating a robust response to the <laughs> issues raised uh, in Dezine recently. We were a little surprised by the article and we'll explain all in, in due course. But no, we still believe there's a place for ambitious targets. we just got one audience contrib- contribution, then I'll come back to you, Jerry. Thank, it's a question to Jerry. When, I mean, because you say you've walked away from projects. That's actually really rare. So... Yeah. You know, when did you decide enough is enough? And, you know, why? And did the code of conduct help you? I'm an engineer. Um, Sibzi have a code of conduct. It took me 10 years to find out. And at the time when I did find out, you know, it's not only me who would have had to decide I'm going to put the code of conduct in front of my client, but I work for a bigger company. There's quite a lot of men above me that would have had to agree with me. So how did you go about it practically to say, that's enough, (laughs) the other directors in my company agree, and I'm going to get out of here? Crikey. Um, I'm not sure I should tell you all this. Uh, So there was a point at which they they, uh, wanted to build a very, very large uh, building next to a playground, which my kids play at, actually, was the first time. (laughs) And um, uh, I, I just, I knew it at the playground and I knew the building shouldn't be there. And the building's not there, actually, interestingly, either, uh, just to say. So, but we told them it was a bad idea and that we, we, we weren't going to draw it. And uh, it, it, it came down to, um, in the end, we asked them to leave the office, actually, and they got really annoyed at us. <laughs> so there, there was a sort of really apocryphal meeting. Um, I really shouldn't tell you all this. It's not the only, pit, it's not the only job we've walked away from, either. I think it's really difficult to do that. It really surprises clients. Um, and it's only happened a couple of times, really, two or maybe three. Uh, and it's because, to be completely honest, it, it's the reputational damage thing. It's like, if they publish this in the AJ tomorrow, 
what would I think? And if, and if, if the answer is, I'd be so embarrassed, then you shouldn't be drawing it, basically. That, that's like a litmus test, I think, really. You know, and, I'm, and I'm really sorry, because that sounds like a low-bar decency thing, and I don't mean it to, but honestly, it's, it's a reputational thing. But I do want to say something about the flip side of that, which is my, my worry with reputation and PR is that it, it stops honest reporting with sustainability, especially with things like net zero. And, and if I had my way, I would get rid of net zero. And this is an awful thing to say. I'd just have carbon reporting. And then separately, if you're doing an offset, that's great. Tell us what it is. But I think that the net zero thing, you get these sort of big glass buildings which are declaring themselves as net zero, and it's a PR exercise. And so the flip side of reputational stuff, which I worry about a little bit, is it, it, it's a bit of a prevention from kind of honest reporting for a, a, an aspect that we've got to be dealing with as a profession. Um, yeah, there you go. That's my provocative statement, probably. So we rely upon naming and shaming from activists, um, a free press to hold us to account, and we need to get rid of it. And we need to get rid of PRs who are puffing it up and ruining it for everyone. Apart from Diane. Were you going to say something, Sana? Probably need to get rid of death registers because, you know, so many of our architects even today are designing buildings that are just killing people. Even today. You know, they're building, they're designing buildings that will overheat before they've even been built, let alone where they'll, they'll be overheating in the next 80 years or of their lifetime. We're designing buildings that are, you know, off-gassing, levels of in, you know indoor air quality that are just bear no resemblance to the what would be deemed fresh air externally in comparison you know there is so much ignorance well, i can say that because i'm not an architect but you know we, we you know we talk about decency and we talk about the uk standards you know well the bar is really low you know as a developer you know 15 years ago we wanted to build healthy buildings where did we look well, we had to look outside the UK. There's no building standards in the UK for healthy buildings. So we adopted a German biobiology standard, and we now work with building biologists. And they're, in, you know, they're part of our design team in the same way that we work with climate scientists because there's no standards that are robust enough to guarantee climate resilience within new build design. So, and an architect can't know all of this stuff. They're not taught all of this stuff. And seldom have they got the luxury of a client that gives them, you know, the brief to design to these remits. So, you know, we work with climate scientists who work alongside the architects. And we don't always work with passive house architects. Um, often I like working with non-passive house architects, but they'll work alongside passive house consultants that can hold their hand. So I think, you know, the feature of, you know, great design is greater collaboration, bringing science to the table um, and really challenging each other because you have the tensions between, you know, I have tensions between uh, climate scientists that doesn't want, you know, too, too much glazing because of overheating. I have a building biologist that wants lots of glazing for that natural daylighting and your circadian rhythms and your hormone productions. And then I have a passive house consultant who will say, well, we need just the right one to get us through PHPP. Um, and also we want great buildings that are fantastic and function really well. And also we want them that are affordable to build. Um, really, really challenging. But time and time again, you can do it because you're working collaboratively. And probably one of the most important people within that room will be the cost consultant in QS. But one that has got, you know, eth 
ethics behind them, but also a real understanding um, and experience of what you're seeking to achieve. And you can deliver the impossible. You, you know, you can make it possible. Um, but we do need to stop thinking beyond, you know, our standards within the UK and really look at best practice around the globe. Um, t- totally, totally agree with you. Um, I do also think that there is, like, when you work for less big developers and it's a smaller developer cost is such a problem like the number of times where i've got to be suggesting the mechanical ventilation and all of the requirements which i've you know like i have done passive house and i've done all these things but most architects haven't done all those qualifications and still definitely most people agree that current building rates are just confused like they're, they're not really giving you anything that makes any sense. So then planners just approve everything. So it's, it's kind of a mess right now. Um, and a lot is ending up on architects plates. So I, I'm not, and then even when we try and suggest a sustainable solution, often the cost is so high. It's very, it's very difficult for a client who has a budget to attain even if you want to retrofit a property to make your existing home better that is very expensive the payback is so long the cost of everything is so much so it's 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 quite a difficult situation i think so sometimes decency is just too expensive <laughs> don't know if anyone yeah but then you go back to you say too expensive at whose expense can we afford not to spend the money <laughs> Um, yeah, I, so there's this thing, isn't it, about... We, we, we struggle with this. It's like you, you, you want to do a really sustainable building, and particularly when you've got the wrong QS, you tell them you want to have triple glazing and MVHR and it's Passive House certified, and boom, there's like 50% extra on all the costs. And the client says, we're not doing that then, are we? And, and so partly that's an education exercise, you know, with, with the QS. Um, you know, partly that's us having done it before, I guess, you know, and being able to say stuff. But partly the other thing is, how do you value the other stuff? That's the bit that's really difficult. It's like you can, you can put a metric against the profit and you can put a metric against the building costs. But the, the difficulty is demonstrating to a client the social value or the biodiversity value in a way that's as hard and fast as the money. That's the bit that is a bit of a struggle because that comes down to, in the end, the client's values quite often. You know, because unless you've got some kind of magic Excel spreadsheet that could convert the social value into money, you know... No, they, they exist. They, you know, they exist. Yeah. So, you know, I have to buy land from the, the council yeah, yeah. because we're a private company. But, you know, I will say, look, you know, I can do your residual land value that takes account of, you know, all the, our requirements and the land value will be negative. Yeah. But then I can... I can produce evidence that will say if you take the social value, if you take the environmental value, it's worth millions. Um, The challenge then is to the politicians to say, what do you want? Do you want a million pounds cash today? You can sell it on the open market and you'll have, you will have just decent homes on it. (laughs) Or do you want to invest now and have incredible social value, incredible environmental value, and you'll have a return on your investment, albeit it will be 40, 50 years down the line. And I think we need to re-educate people. We need to talk much more about the business case and the business case being much wider than just the cost of something. And we need to marry up the work that you're doing as architects with a new language that helps clients make the right decisions. I think you know a lot of 
Some clients do want to make the right decision, yeah. but invariably they're driven too much by that financial aspect. Yeah, I mean, actually, we, we have seen some of those spreadsheets, like we would say three adapt with the five capitals model and stuff, and and I think they are brilliant. But the the the, the work, I mean, I think Emma, you probably get them right, and you 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 think they're brilliant. But a lot of people we have worked with if they don't have the values already inherent to appreciate what those things are telling them then then they don't accept what they're being told if you see what i mean and I, what i don't really know is kind of the hard-nosed name you almost mentioned son <laughs> you know why does it matter to them in a way that that social value and and how do you structure it to make it matter to them is a really sort of interesting thing because i think as a council you end up owning you know, or, or you're invested in that local area for a long period of time. But the classic house builder model is you, you build it and you sell it, and then you're out. And, and I think how do you um, incentivise that long-term value, if you like, uh, with that model? I'm going to do my chair bit and take the microphone back. Um, uh, I wanted to ask a question to the crowd because uh, I know there's a lot of really great architects in the room. And remember, this isn't being visually recorded. It's just audio recording. So there's no, there's no public shaming. But could I get a, some hands in the air if people have, um, you know, told a client to get lost based on ethics or morals? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's encouraging. Okay. Steve. I just want to, yeah, I wanted to keep the conversation going in the room. So I was just wondering if there was anyone else who, yeah, go on, Diane. Uh, let's hear what you have to say. Um, I'm just surprised, really, that we've not mentioned as one of the, re- the, one of the ways to turn this around is voting. Because it just strikes me that until we have a government that values social value instead of a government that values unfettered short-term profit, how on earth can architects or anybody that's designing operate and deliver within that system? And that's what we have to do. We have to organise politically, not by, not, I mean, not just by profession. And you're right, architects are picking, picking up a lot of the shit, but so are teachers and so are nurses. And we have a government that doesn't value social value at all, and that trickles down. And developers will continue to get away with as much as they can because that's the society we live in. They do it better in Holland. We've done it better before. Um, and that's what we need to do is, is vote this government out. <laughs> Anyone else that's not a speaker? Oh, Brian. Oh, also, by the way, if people come round with food and you want to order a drink, just order a drink from them. I suppose it's more a question to the room, really. Um, I've had some interesting conversations with colleagues around their ethics in, with regard to being involved in certain projects, for example, designing bridges for new roads and new bits of highway. Is Their argument is, well, it'll make it better. You know, my influence is to just try and make it better without necessarily looking fundamentally at what you're doing, which is road building or um, you're damaging the countryside or you're reducing, you know, uh, that ultimately you're sort of polishing something that's intrinsically problematic. Is that ethical to say, I will do the work to make it better, but the, the overall 
offer is still questionable. I suppose I just that's a question to the room, really. Around. Does anyone want to take that from the room? Because I used to work at Grimshaw a long time ago, on, on Eden. But Grimshaw do airports. So it's the airport argument. Isn't it? Yeah. Are you okay designing an airport? And um, the argument goes something like this. It's like, somebody's going to design that airport, right? And so the airport itself is a building and, and should be low energy. And the airport has lots of landscape around it, which needs to be biodiverse. So it's, it's even though what you're doing is fundamentally not helping properly in the scheme of things your little contribution towards it improves the impact of that thing within this system where it probably shouldn't exist. And what's the right answer? Should you walk away from the airport or not? Is, is the question really, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think it's really difficult to say to somebody, I, I think, and I'd really love someone to argue against me, I think that it's really hard to say to them you shouldn't be designing that airport because it's sort of where do you stop? You know, should we not have cities? You know, should should we, you know, should we not um, have dense population anywhere? Should we live off the land? Is is the whole system broken? Because unless you have a sort of fix, if you like, for that entire system, I think it's really difficult to argue against designing a component within that system. And I, that'd be my take on it, I think. But I'd be really love someone else to jump in and say, "No, you're wrong." <laughs> Alice is going to do it. <laughs> I knew you would because of architecture. Yeah, I thought. I, I mean, I was at Grimshaw at the same time. Um, so, yeah, I think the aviation debate's been, been played out, but I think we do have carbon accounting now, which can quickly understand how much the impact of the sustainability of the terminal has on the overall whole-life carbon impact of the project. And, and I think if we say, if I don't do it, someone else will. I've got a quote from Flora Samuel here who wrote a fantastic book on the value of architects. If we didn't design it, someone else would. This only serves to highlight a worrying abdication of ethical responsibility by some of the world's leading design firms. None of this helps the reputation of the architect. So if that's the lowest bar of someone else will do it, it's a very low bar because you'll always find someone to do something. Apply that to other aspects of your life and you can find people to do all sorts of things that you wouldn't think were acceptable. So I think that's a, that's a rebuffle on that. But yeah, whether or not... You need to look at the whole life carbon global picture to understand how much new aviation we can afford i think also it's it's more than just about climate obviously climate is the great challenge of the age but i mean um before all of these arguments were so nuanced and and well well said i worked for a large practice which had in its charter um very clearly we will not design prisons we will not design um, things that can be used for warfare. We will not, and I thought that was quite interesting that you would actually put on a public document on your website and in all your brochures an actual list of typologies that are, you are morally and ethically against. Um, and so I wonder: has um, was anyone else? In, has anyone in the room ever produced such a document that could be? Do you want to explain a little bit about it? I'm going to have to run over. Lack of microphones. Yeah, so um, at our practice, one of the basic things is um, there's a whole sort of ethics section on the website, and one of the first things is we will not do anything for the military, no matter what, and that is there in black and white. You will not do it. You will not do anything in that respect beyond that will um, cause 
how can you describe it? Um, irreparable environmental harm is the next one. So obviously you, we take into account that some projects will cause potentially short-term harm that could be repaired over time, but if it's irreparable, then why are we doing it? And a good example of that is, um, I think it was last December, we got a random email in the inbox from uh, the developers, they, that line, the NEOM, is it Saudi Arabia or something like that, going, oh, would you uh, like to take part in this? Well, first we're like, well... No, firstly, you're building, trying to build an air-conditioned city in one several-kilometre line in an environment that's not designed for people. So actually, no. And actually, when you develop your own ethical position as a government, maybe we might start talking. So, of course, that email didn't go down very well. But given those sort of points, it's an example of walking away from a project. There was years ago, about 2007, eight. not a good idea. It was just as the financial crash was happening. Walking away from a major job, it was a... Um, it was a shopping centre, actually, and we, we said that you don't air-condition the streets. Why are you air-conditioning the streets going between the spaces? Actually, they should just be covered from the rain, but open air. And they said, no, we're going to make it a fully internal environment. Fine, sorry, walked away from a very big job. But that's the sort of examples that you need to take as an architect. Is, and you get some practices, I won't name names, that say do, did work on the World Cup, and they said, oh, well, they only did the um, concept stage, but I'll put this out there. Sorry, you were the enablers of that corruption because you put the design out there for someone to take forward and build which then caused the deaths of the various people that built it so you have to think about the long-term effect of that design you put out there in the public yes it gets complicated when you follow the money doesn't it because you might be working on a residential development in london which is generating profits for the same people that uh built that um, concert stage I think it's really interesting um, thinking about other countries and deciding that our ethical perspective is correct um, because I'm not sure how many people think the UK has the best ethics in the world. <laughs> but, um, but I'm not sure where we are to judge a government that we installed from colonialism many years ago. So um, I think it's, it's important to, to think about it from that perspective. But once... Um, I was a, um, a big practice for a long time and we had some projects in India, which is also where I'm, I'm ethnically from and that was really exciting to me and someone from the press came and said, oh, you know, like, what are the ethics of working in India? And part of me was, set, was thinking, okay, biggest democracy in the world, how is there an issue here? But another part of me was thinking, oh, more colonialism. And so it's... That there is, I think that you can think of these things in so many ways, and I don't think the way that often like architects and architecture says, oh, how can you work in Saudi? Like They treat people like this. I just don't think it's correct to, that we give an ethical perspective on countries that we work in because you know, ev everywhere's got a different standard. So um, it, it's important to question those aspects. Other thoughts? I'm not too sure whether this is going to sound right, but I'm going to say it anyway. Is there a... So many of our talks are, in essence, about the role of the architect, and I think that's what we're picking away at, talk after talk after talk, theme after theme after theme. Um, do we not feel, if we are a service provider... It seems to be that what people are saying is we're sort of down the food chain a little bit, we're not in control of the money, and therefore we are automatically compromised. Is there not some uh, argument for redressing that balance by how we educate 
future architects in terms of what the role of the architect actually is or should be so that we can control the uncontrollables or be more of a voice that can shape reality. Question. So, so that's a question about the extent of agency of, of the architect, I think, and, and what power do we have in the system? And, and I think it's a really interesting question because um, on one of Emma's points, we've noticed, we've worked a bit for sort of sustainable funds, you know, the bits of pension funds that got to spend the money in the right way, and they always do the right thing. They always want to build really energy houses, they, really, they want to build a nursery or something like that because they're kind of duty-bound to do it, and that's the power of money driving a, a project in a way that our agency as an architect, if you like, in a project, would struggle to do. Because we can show people the right thing to do, and, but how do we make them do it unless they want to do it? In terms of how you educate people to kind of get more power in the system, the truth is, I think if, if that was your ambition, you would have to educate people to be able to step out of their architect role, to be completely honest, because you'd have to move up the food chain to have more agency in the situation I think that architect, as currently defined, would struggle to be able to have that kind of power. You just add development economics to your uh, your uh, just add development economics to your training because you know so much is the language and explaining the business case behind what you're doing. And I think from architects, if you understood more and had a better understanding of the value that you bring to development, then you're talking the same language as those clients. A lot of those clients. Uh, something I found very interesting as currently an architectural student uh, about this debate the whole night is how the concentration, the conversation has concentra- concentrated more on what we will will build, will, will build um, with the conversation of um, uh, space standards and of property developers. But something that I, within my like understanding and comprehension of architecture is also what we have built and the built environment that already exists in London because um, how I participate a lot in architecture is within housing estates that are constantly under threat of demolition and you Joey Tate said how the um, GLC and that legacy that wonderful legacy on the built environment of London and I found it very interesting how it's um, Yes, this conversation is more on what we will build rather than what we should, A, protect in, within our built environment already that we already have that is always constantly under threat of demolition and um, how we can also, within the things that we do have that are, if we're talking about the 60s, made out of a massive amounts of concrete, how we can preserve this, how we can retrofit this and keep it within our built environment because I think if we shift the debate against space standards and all of this and just look at the streets and the communities and everything we already have because demolition in itself is an incredibly violent act and demolition of people's homes as well is incredibly violent. So I think that that's my perspective as an architecture student on um, this world of architecture. And yes. (laughs) So listening to architects and future architects i'm wondering should there be we talked about standards and guidelines should there be an ethical standard that can be somehow become a metric that um affects profit investment and uh oh here we go planning 
No. <laughs> I mean, I'm going back to what Emma's been talking about consistently, and I think there's some great points being made by Alistair and Cherry and, and Sana as well, but I think, Emma, is that issue about being able to be versed with a language of development, a language of economics, a language of understanding the delivery of a complicated process. You know, there's an awful lot of actors involved in buildings. And going back to your point, um, when you know that language, there are some things that you need to demolish. They're full of asbestos or they're substandard. The retrofit doesn't always cost less. You know, there's always a balance. That education is gone. That knowledge is gone a little bit, I think, partly to do with political change in, in, in the UK. Um, many people who are around here tonight will remember CABE. And um, for as much as you might want to complain about their design review panel, the enabling section where they're going around the country and actually helping and holding the hands of local authorities at planning and strategic levels on understanding, again, the language and the processes of development, financial or otherwise, allows for a degree of joined-up thinking. So, to me, I think there's much more joined-up thinking to do collectively than there is about just making new standards. I'm glad someone was able to shut that down very, very quickly. Um, do we have any more... Um uh, what? No. Oh, okay, okay, okay. You can't shut this down. No, I, so, <laughs> I think this, this is a good point, though, about architects being assessed and knocking things down and talking about what the future is and, and not valuing what's there. And, and you know this because we do... One of the things we like doing, one of our favourite things, is to go to university and do them a master plan and say, you don't need a building because it freaks them out. Like, what? We don't need a building, but we need a building. You know, you've got a timetabling problem. It's not an architecture problem kind of thing. There are, I think the point about the existing built environment, though, is understanding, you know, what it is that's valuable and what's not valuable. I think, actually, Britain's quite sophisticated at doing that, to be honest with you, um, in certain eras. And in other areas, it's not so good. And I think, again, that's, that's probably to do with political background, to be, to be, to be really honest. And again, it, again, this is an ethical stance. It's sort of um, brutalism, for example. Liking brutalism is almost a political statement, you know? So I think it's kind of really complicated territory, again. But certainly the thing that's coming at us really fast is that within 10 years, I reckon every project will have a whole-life carbon assessment. And once that becomes a reality it's going to be really tricky to knock anything down. And you'll be finding people buying buildings to get hold of a big concrete bone. So they'll be like, oh, this building's got great concrete, let's get it. Because you won't be able to kind of recreate that kind of concrete and stick within kind of reasonable whole-life carbon you know, boundaries, if you like. So I, I think it's a good point, to be totally honest, but I think it's going to become more relevant in 10 years probably than it, than it is right now. Um, Thanks, Drew. At ACAM, we are pushing to have government policy where you do have to declare the carbon emissions from construction and whole life carbon, and that's one of the things we're pushing for. If you want to listen to a debate around uh, like tear it down or build it up, it's at the Rich Mix next week, um, Thursday, with Open City. I'm there. 
fighting for <laughs> retrofit and retention. So yeah, there is um, that it is a debate and it is a stance. So I, I was surprised that anyone would fight for demolition, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm sure we will we will have some great speakers. So. We've got Alistair and then Julie again. Just two points from me on accountability. I kind of agree, but I also want us to remember that we do have great codes already. We're just not held accountable to them. And so that's the thing. People talk about upgrading codes and having more standards, but like, actually, let's just follow the ones that we have because certainly in the professions, they are pretty strong. We're just not held to account yet. On education and what future architects need to know, the consultation with the Architects Registration Board is open until the 10th of May on what future skills architects need to learn. So please, if you care about this, do complete that consultation. It's not a long one. ACAN are providing a response. But yeah, get in touch with me if you want to fill that consultation. Yeah, and this is not a, an act. Uh, if you do want to fight demolition, you can also email <laughs> Michael Gove, uh, who was supposed... <laughs> who was supposed to decide on the M&S Oxford Street uh, in two days and who has delayed it till the end of July. So email him for the M&S Oxford Street. I think, I think something that Hugh said to me, maybe he could put it better than me, when we first started talking about this was the idea that architects generally, maybe there's an industry-wide thing where it's like, yeah, we're just, we're nice, we're liberal people, we're ethical. Uh, does everyone agree that that is kind of an industry-wide general feeling? And loads of nodding heads for the podcast. You think they think they're not ethical? Um, I think the people who don't think of themselves perhaps as progressive and liberal aren't here. They're somewhere else chatting about what they're going to knock down next. What kind of smoking cigar saying, we're going to knock this down, that kind of thing. I mean, I'm joking, but I'm probably not joking. Um, I'm going to throw this to Sana in a minute because she made a point to me before this, which is that everybody wants to do the right thing. Everybody thinks they're doing the right thing, even the evil people smoking cigars, knocking down buildings. That they, In their head, they are doing the right thing. And it's... Given that everyone thinks they're doing the right thing, the, the kind of like, are you actually doing the right thing comes down to sort of education, really, and um, not just codes, but also pressure groups and attending the right things and the people you hang out with and that kind of peer pressure thing. And, and I think that's why events are really important. That's one of the things I felt most sad about COVID, actually, was, was the, the, the kind of lack of meeting people and going to events and not kind of keeping up with what was going on, fearing that I was kind of losing touch with what, what was happening. But in terms of education, you know, apart from that, architects don't get taught about money in school, which is a problem. You know, the, the, the other problem is that as architects, we finish our education, and I know there's always pressure to do more CPD, but there's no funded, you know, six-month refresh or something, you know, which, which would be, honestly, from my point of view, I would love someone to say, well, you know, here's some money, take a year, learn again, go kind of thing like that. And one of the problems with architects is, is you, you end up quite outdated in what you do. You rely on the young people coming through into your company, frankly, to kind of keep you up to date with what's going on. So, so that's my thing, is how do you make sure you're doing the right thing and how do you educate yourself, I think, is, is, is again, really complex territory. Um, there you go. I think also, how do you measure success? You know, I think architects, you seem to love your awards. You yeah. know, it's just, you know, 
architectural porn is everywhere. And I think, you know, can we, can we revisit, you know, what is success? You know, how often do we go back and ask the users of our buildings, you know, the residents, the communities, you know, do you, is this successful? You know, we're not particularly good at, you know, going back, doing post-monitoring work. You know, we kind of move on to the next project, you know, and, and going back to looking at reuse, you know, where are the ethics behind gentrification? You know, what are we, you know, we're seeing this in London. You know, how do we ensure that, you know, what we're developing is the right sort of development? I mean, we're seeing a lot of, you know, in Waltham Forest, the development economics are such, you've got to go upwards. But, you know, what are the ethics of designing family homes that are just, you know, high-rise and they're just going up, up and up? And so I think, you know, I think there's still a lot we need to talk about and debate about, um, but we mustn't forget that, you know, what we design is all about the people. And, you know, and tonight we haven't talked much about people. We've talked a lot about design. Um, and I think we should be a little bit more sophisticated and, and have the bravery to go back and visit maybe some of our old projects and say, well, were they success? You know, they might have won you lots of awards, um, but actually have the outcomes um, delivered. And also, you know, the RIBA and, and a lot of these award bodies, they need to rethink the criteria in terms of what warrants an award now. And, you know, and I think we need, need to broaden that out. I'm so glad you brought up awards because I work for multiple practices and I often part of my job is doing award submissions, as I know some other people in this room may have to do on a regular basis. And there is a community impact box. There is a sustain, there are sometimes very lengthy sustainable um, credentials that you have to put in with measurements and blah, 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 blah. And then you get to the shortlist and you go, well, that's weird. Because the shortlist is not the most community-minded and it's not the most sustainable. It seems to be the most kind of beautifully detailed, concrete... Uh, bricks, you know, um, uh, incredibly delightful, gorgeous, rich, luxurious buildings. And what happened to my submission, which was sustainable and ethical? And then when, and then it gets kind of even worse when you get to the winners, because then when you get to the winners, it does feel, and I'm just going to say this, it feels like it's the same practices that win time after time, who are very established. And, you know, sometimes you get, they'll, like, give out, like, a couple of awards for the newbies just to make it look like it's okay. But it is, awards are, like, super dodgy. And I think, I think as an industry, this is now, I'm just, I'm a chair, but now I'm saying my own opinions. But um, as an industry, I think we really need to look at that criteria. So we're going to do Steve and then you over here. Just really quickly, I'm glad Emma brought up people. <laughs> rather than awards. Um, <laughs> um, because sometimes, you know, um, well, let's put it this way. I, I remember a nice shift when Hugh and I were designing plans for um, a social housing provider and um, um, the conversation was much more involved on the layout of the plan than it was for a private developer. So these things became important. And um, this was comfortable to us because we felt that we were always up against it with the private developer in terms of trying to make a plan um, that worked for people, that worked properly, not just um, um, ticked all the, all the numbers. And I think that's 
that's something that we haven't discussed tonight. And sometimes the design of a plan, and I've had conversations with um, RCKA and Alex, main architects and, and so on, and a lot, there's a good discussion out there between architects about what makes a good plan. And, it, and also with clients, particularly in social housing. Um, where there has been um, a kind of knowledge and a kind of awareness of the kind of people that you're delivering that housing to, um, which I think has to be part of the debate more than awards. Sorry, Rob. Plans, jeez. Um, this is a question for you, and also for everyone else as well, but um, the company that I work for now, so they do a lot of, like, development, like sort of high-rise, which I don't really agree with, but that's a whole other <laughs> story. But basically they um, so were commissioned to design the, from stages one to three a development, and they did all the plans for them. But then, I think which is quite common, another company took over from stage three and then had initially... So they designed all these, like, two-bedroom apartments, initially, no, one-bedroom apartments, and then where the kitchen was... At stage three, the other company had then come in and then rearranged the whole plan, but done that once planning had come in. And I feel like that's quite a common thing that happens in these developments to try and generate as much profit as possible and then sort of, yeah, like have as much sort of like, yeah, apartments in a small sort of amount of space. But then how do you like create more regulation within that? Because you've got planning that's already gone through. And then you have another company that then don't really... There's, like, such a lack of, like, discussion between the companies before, the architects who do it before, and then afterwards. And then that allows developers to then get away with quite a lot of stuff. So then how do you sort of, like... Yeah, it's because, believe it or not, developers, you know, they have got a degree of intelligence, and so they will maximise profit. I mean, that's what they're born and bred for. It's money, money, money. Um, so I can't defend developers i'm not going to defend developers it's the nature of that's their industry in the same way that most architects you know are there to design incredible buildings most developers are there to, to deliver a profit um what i would say is right now and all of you will know this um you know development economics is really really tight um and so you need to be more sophisticated and more intelligent to maintain um, a viable profit level. Um, that just means that, you know, things get dumbed down and you go towards more decency as opposed to, you know, delightful design. Um, and that's why, um, I, I guess from my perspective, it's about how do we disrupt the market, deliver homes that are more than decent, and we educate the purchasers that there is a choice and they understand the difference between, you know, what the volume house builders are developing and their model and, their, and what other people are delivering. Unfortunately, there's not enough other developers that are able to deliver enough choice for us to turn the market. Because if the market suddenly started voting with their feet and said, look, you know, I want to, you know, I'll only buy a home that is healthy. I'll only buy a home that is climate resilient. Um, the bigger developers will change. But at the moment, there's not enough. There's not enough evidence. There's not enough market demand for it. Um, so we've just got to keep battling away. Um, 
and and share our learnings. You know, I think there's a lot we can do, whether you've got experience of these projects or not. Um, you know, a lot of my um, my experience has come through making a huge amount of mistakes, um, and and just learning, you know, from one iteration to the next. And I think sharing your mistakes is so much more powerful than just sharing your successes. So we should probably have awards for failures and mistakes um, and then learn from those rather than from perceived successes, really. I'm interested in talking about how we, as a community, create a kind of... um, collective ethic because I think ethics do change over time and I'm old enough I'm afraid to remember that when I started architecture um, if I remember this rightly and someone can put me right if I'm wrong um, the emphasis was on our sort of civic responsibilities but now what Arb says is your responsibility is to your client and you should consider the impact on society as a whole that is a an absolutely huge shift if you think about it and whilst you know I don't think we're ever going to be taking what I would call the architectural Hippocratic oath you know there are actually really serious um, consequences from things that go wrong as we know and where we found real problems is that actually what's controlling a lot of what we do is the insurance market, that's both PI and the ability to get insurance on buildings themselves. Um, yes, and well, and there was something else and I've forgotten what it was. But I mean, I think the, the issue around um, monetization and the way in which everything has become marketized in our society is really an ecology which goes from top to bottom And that has caused a lot of the problems that we're now in. And the fight back is coming from the youngsters who see that as a problem. We're all implicated in it, and that's the problem as well. So my dilemma as a leader of a practice is where we make really difficult decisions in this ecology between paying our staff well, doing a good job, i.e. spending fees, and the downward pressure on bidding for work in the public sector. That's where we can't square the circle. And if we continue in this ecology, I feel very negative about how we're ever going to get out of this ethical dilemma. You're ha- <coughs> when you have artificial uh, uh, w- intelligence... Well, what I'm going to say... That's a, that's a really, designers. That's a really powerful point. So what I'm going to say to each of the speakers, I'll start with you, Emma, is... How do we get ourselves out of this ethical dilemma? Well, you know, we have. I mean, I don't know if anyone read the papers today, but you got um, um, Zara Hadid um, using artificial intelligence. I think it's fascinating. You know, how do we design buildings for... And we talked about people, but also, you know, the dimension of robots and, you know, users of buildings in the future because you know we may well have carers that are robots that are living in our homes so how all we're moving at such a pace and we're talking about ethics but you know when you start thinking about the ethics of you know design um you know is there you know can we use artificial intelligence um 
algorithms and the like to help us. So how can, you know, instead of just shying away from it, do we have to be really brave and say, okay, we've got a major problem here because how do we square cost with value or with good design, with good outputs? puts for people you know maybe we need to look beyond you know, our own intelligence to say well can artificial intelligence and help us i don't know that comes with a another layer of ethical debate i'm going to i'm going to keep going around um the speakers to ask them to answer this question but before i do i didn't want to uh ignore the audience one last time thank you just kind of quick comments on First one is on the question of artificial intelligence. I'm not sure. It is exciting, but there is another layer. If we're talking about decency and ethics, uh, there is another huge dimension uh, when we start talking about artificial intelligence. And where does the where is the the sources that uh, the artificial intelligence is using. How do we control the... I think it already got so much out of the hand. We, we, we already can't control it. And I think we kind of start to get a bit scared of where it's going because it feels like um, it's, such an, uh, it's going at such a speed that my question is, uh, there is another um, ethical dimension when we start talking about artificial intelligence. And... Another thing is when you start talking, we just talked about the, that uh, we can't even design decent homes. We, we struggle with um, designing homes, with designing buildings that are good enough. And then we start talking about robots and all this beautiful um, high-tech future. But it seems a bit kind of unrealistic because I think it will take us a couple of dozens of years to deal with the very simple problems we are facing right now we um even here in uk um we're struggling so much that uh, starting to think about all these expensive solutions and high-tech technologies it seems a bit you know um unrealistic i'm just kind of smart homes are here already you know, the technology, are, our, but it's such our a... fridges with our computer systems. It, and, you know, you're only just seeing the start of it. You know, fast forward 10 years and it would be great to re- meet back here in 10 years' time to have this debate. Well, you might not have to wait that long because no. <laughs> we are debate. Would people like us to do a talk on AI, bring in some AI experts? I think, I think, that, I think it's time. We did the metaverse already, didn't we? And that was, honestly, that was amazing. Property developer, hotelier, designer, and lawyer talking about the metaverse. So check out the podcast for that one. I'm just going to pass you on to Sana. Um, in terms of how we can be better. What's next? What's next? Um, I think what's really important is educating ourselves as much as possible. It's quite. Um, it's not the most exciting thing, but it, it is really what what we need to be doing because things are changing and um, there are so many standards that we need to question, um, ambitions that we need to interrogate more and and things that we really need to uncover. And actually, I think education is doing quite a lot of that. All my, I mean, last, uh, I think last year, my students at CSM, most of their projects were not designing buildings. They were designing um, mushroom paths that decomposed after a year. And, you know, in, in a way, that's how we should be starting to think, you know, it's spatial practice. It's not 
a building every time and how can we define space in other ways um i think that's that's hopefully a bit of the future crikey the future <laughs> um thanks Anna. i mean i i think that's um i think it's really interesting about what what what's next you know what i hope is next is um picking up slightly i guess on on this kind of idea of of um evidence if you like of did you do the right thing and how do you know i think it'd be there's not enough evidence-based design to be completely honest and i think that comes from all architects are too wrapped up in in a kind of pr game that we have to do because we have to kind of get work in and so i more honest reporting i think would really help us kind of hone if you like where we actually need to do things like make regulatory change or or the Overton window of ethics would shift in the right direction, if that makes sense, if we all really were honest about everything that we did as a practice. So I, I think the truth is, I hope that's the future, really, that we start being more honest about what we're doing. The, the other thing about AI, interestingly, I mean, I think AI is already here, just to say, because uh, like Revit will do me a staircase, you know. I mean, I, I think... I'm really happy to embrace all technological change which gives a better outcome, to be completely honest. No matter what that is, I think I'd really struggle to say that, that something... And I do understand there's a sort of, you know, losing jobs and that kind of thing, but inevitably, in better productivity is better for society. That That is just a truism, I think. And the downward pressure on fees, the only way out of that for us as a profession is to become more productivity you know, make smarter productivity, to be completely honest, which I hope is something to do with AI and Revit and all that kind of stuff. Then the last thing I'll end on then is I hope there's a sort of full circle that does where the computer can give me some kind of feedback. My, my, my real hope is that some evidence comes into design making and, and we can understand our decision making in real time, you know, rather than having to kind of fill out the PHPP and see how we did. So there you go. Anyway, I've finished Thanks, Rob. Um, Jerry, I'm surprised you didn't mention protection of function as something in the future that might allow architects to charge higher fees and have time for all of this training and the various things we're going to need to do to upskill to face climate emergency and everything else. But if that does come in, that's interesting. I think we can certainly vote for that, lobby for that. Jerry wrote a great article about that for BD, so that's one idea. But the trouble with that is it doesn't necessarily come with So sorry. So, so okay, sorry. I'm, I'm now going <laughs> to... Yeah, okay. Protection function. The trouble with that is, like, the RBA has this attitude towards defending architects' fees about adding responsibilities all the time, right? And, but, and so we get more responsibilities. We don't actually get more fees, you know? So I, I know I made an argument that we should have protection function to get more fees, but I'm kind of backtracking on that now because what I've seen is our responsibilities to profession increase and, and the fee base not. To be completely honest, and, and that I have anxiety about that. As someone the who runs client a business. base not increase. The, the fee base doesn't increase, if that makes sense. But so the number of clients requiring our services would increase enormously. Yeah, that's true. You got me there. <laughs> I'm still hopeful on protection of function, and then I guess the other thing that gives me optimism is, like I like I explained, the youth activism, the groups in the room, and the groups outside the room who are making changes in our industry, and the incoming Reba president, Moira Oki, who has got accountability as one of the pillars of his, his election statement. So hopefully he will enact some change. And, uh, yeah. Thanks very much. I think 
a lot of what it comes back to is uh, we're talking about education, activism, uh, leading investors, leading developers, um, trying to get everyone, you know, the uh, failures awards, which I'm going to champion. I don't know how, I don't know who's going to enter that, but I'm going to try. Um, but I think all of this, I think a lot of it comes down to honesty, which we're talking about, about um, sharing data, sharing information, talking about failures, holding people to account. Um, so I think I think if we were going to sum it up, maybe honesty is the one word that we could try and pin onto. Honest by design, not decent. Honest by design, maybe. That's a better word and a higher bar. So... With that, without further ado, I'm just uh, I'm going to say thank you, and then I'm going to pass you on to Hugh. But I'd just like to thank Emma, Jerry, Sano, and Alistair for their time. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.